I well, don't I mean, think regardless, they're listening. Regardless of whether it's a smart move or not, it, it really looks like we're going to split into two coins. I, I don't why, know how why? they resolve that. Why? Why is it going to split? Be, they, people have been starting right so no, what? I mean, there, there was January, whatever for for Bitcoin XT. There was the the you know Bitcoin Classic stuff. There was a Bitcoin you know, Unlimited. Now there's this. This is just the fourth time it's been tried. I'm telling you, Jimmy, it's the same formula. It doesn't work. We're used to this. I've been in the trenches for two years. I know this whole battle. I've seen this battle. Okay. I fought it many I, times, I, and it I, doesn't I, work. It's not gonna. It's not gonna I get, work. I get. I get your perspective. It's not gonna I, work. There's not gonna I, be. I get your there's not gonna be a chain but, split, or if there is a chain split, it'll be an alt that nobody uses, and that's why nobody's but, done it. If people actually well, thought that this had economic support, they would already do it. They'd make money. Yeah, yeah. They'd do it, you know, but they, it doesn't. In fact, Eric, is they Eric, just want control. Eric, Eric. You're listening to the Bitcoin and Markets podcast. Hello, Bitcoiners. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Today, we have a full-length episode for you. I go through all sorts of stuff. I will start a little bit with the price. I'll talk about some of the recent fundamentals we've seen with the hash rate. Uh, I'll talk about some interviews that Theo Goodman did a really good interview with Jihan that I talk about. Um, go into economics all over the place. Talk about Lightning Network, Jimmy Song. I mean, it's just a jam-packed episode, so thanks for joining me. Let's get right into a market update. Bitcoin. Right now, Bitstamp is 25.84. We've seen a pretty good move in the last uh, day, I would say, two days. Um, we did break out of the triangle to the, to the top side. Uh, that was backed up by this increase in hash rate that I'll talk about here in a minute. So I think... I think this is a good breakout. Um, if we have some more FUD, though, always be watching out for FUD and uh, stories from the 2X camp and Jihan and all that. Um, if they are really pushing this FUD, we could see a price drop again. But I think that we have broken out. We are going up. This would be a good entry. Uh, if you've been waiting for like a long entry, we've broken out. We've kind of come back and tested that that resistance. So this is not investment advice, but I think this this probably is a pretty good entry. All right, so let's let's roll on to some stories here. All right, let's do some, let's catch up on some news. I've been saving a few stories here that are pretty big in Bitcoin over the last several weeks. Uh, but the first one I want to uh, talk about is on the bleeding edge of the news cycle. And that is this big hash rate jump that we had over the last 24 hours. If you listen to Pow Bitcoin, I've been talking about hash rate for a long time. And uh, this just, I think it was like a 30% jump in hash rate on Bitcoin. A 30% jump. Uh, that's gigantic. <laughs> absolutely gigantic so I, I included a link or i included an image in the show notes on bitcoinandmarkets.com so you guys can check that out i mean it just shoots up the hash rate over the last like the average hash rate over the last five days just went parabolic 
and straight up. So since we started July here, I mean, it's just ridiculous how fast this is going up. Um, what could this mean? You know, when I first saw this, I was like, oh, yeah, that is uh, very bullish for the price. That is confirming this breakout of the triangle consolidation pattern that we are in. It's very good. But then I heard a theory about what, why this is exactly happening, and I wanted to go through that here. Um, so the theory behind why the hash rate is exploding is because these malicious miners that cannot be trusted, they are scared of user-activated software. So it makes sense for them to pump up the difficulty, to get the difficulty adjusted higher so that 5% of hash rate becomes 2% of hash rate or 3% of hash rate when the user activates software occurs. It's very tricky and clever. And I think that's likely the case here. That's likely what's happening. I, if that is the case, if that is true, then to me, it also says that Jihan has no intention on following through with Segwit2x. Because Segwit2x is coming online, right? And should be should lock in SegWit before August 1st, so there won't be any issue there. Why would he be pumping this difficulty to hurt the user activity software if that user activity software is not a threat anymore because everyone's running this SegWit2x? It doesn't make any sense to me. I think this is a great opportunity for the New York Agreement people, the signatories to this New York Agreement, to join forces with the user activity software against these malicious miners that have some ulterior motive here. They have some hidden agenda. And it's a great opportunity for them to join with a compatible movement. The user activated soft fork is compatible with Segwit2x. Join with them. Mine the same chain. It's all good. Then you don't have to worry about Jihan and what his motives and his incentives and all these things are. So I hope this that there is this alliance that comes out over the next few days, I mean, the price would just explode if the New York agreement people uh, like Barry Silbert or somebody uh, from that agreement came out and said, yes, we are supporting the user activity software. We are dedicated to mining on that chain because it'll be the same chain anyway. We're going to do that. Oh man, it's over. That's kind of like a trump card. Another trump card that's being waited to be pulled out, I think, is merging 148 into core. There's a lot of resistance by the core developers right now that has been softening over the last several weeks. I think that will continue to soften. And we I'm hoping eventually, maybe by July 19th or 20th, they decide to put this into core. I understand their stance. They don't want to see, they don't want to be like, we are in control, we are pushing this. This is a user, this is a decentralized movement, that's what 148 is, and yada, yada, yada. But Core has a lot of uh, you nodes out there, they have a lot of users that want to run 48, but they won't until Core implements it. So if you are running Core, email, get on the mailing list, uh, get on the Slack channel, get on Twitter, and tell these people that you want 148 to be put into Core. The more people that say that, the more people that pressure core, they have a get out clause that they can do it and be like, this was the users. This was not us. So 
if that happens, uh, or, and or the New York agreement, people see this Jihan development with the hash rate as malicious, then maybe they'll band with the user activated soft fork folks, and it will go forward, you know, bigger and better. All right, next story is um, Theo Goodman did an interview with Jihan, and I posted the video in the show notes that you guys can find that uh, on BitcoinMarkets.com. I mean, all, these show notes are pretty detailed, and I don't want to like have a huge, long-ass thing in the, the audio show notes. So I put it into onto my website. But anyway, in this video, we can see a complete disregard, the complete disregard that Jihan has for users of Bitcoin. He laughs at us. Laughs at us. In his mind, he is in charge, and you can see that from this video. That he is the one in charge. He is the big brain in the room. He's the one that should be making the decisions. He has been slighted. And maybe it's a cultural difference here. I don't know. But he is the one that is in control. Not the users. That's what he thinks. Uh, he makes decisions what is right and wrong ethically. When, he when he's describing soft fork and hard fork, he is deciding what's right and wrong ethically. There is no room in his worldview for the market to decide. The market, to him, the market cannot decide. Somebody is making the decision. In his mind, somebody is, and he wants to be the one. Um, that's completely backwards, obviously. Users demand miners' coins, not because miners have applied a lot of proof of work, but miners apply proof of work because it's demanded by the users. The coins are demanded by the users. Jihan also laughs at users when talking about the user-activated soft fork. Remember, the user-activated soft fork in Litecoin forced miners to capitulate, and it will do so in Bitcoin as well. It is bad in cleanup. It is that stick that is going to hit them in the face if they don't do SegWit. So, user-activated soft fork is pushing forward. It's decentralized. It cannot be turned off. It's going to happen. Jihan is promised to hard fork if that happens. Not to SegWit2x, but now to like an emergent consensus and extension block fork. So that is the real alternative here. SegWit2x really isn't an alternative. This 2 megabyte or 8 megabyte increase in the block weight is not the alternative to SegWit. It's this Bitcoin Unlimited and extension block Frankenstein that is going to be pushed by Jihan on August 1st. That is the alternative. That is what he wants. That is what the signatories are trying, like putting blinders on so they don't see what Jihan's malicious activity is. He has no intention on going forward with Segwit2x. It's obvious. You can watch his, this interview. You can watch the hash rate. You can see all of these things. Look at his history of the way he's acted. He has no intention on following through with his word. At all. There's a commitment, there's a commitment problem in game theory where, you know, uh, I I want a certain move I want certain moves to play out this way so I will tell my opponent I am going to do this and that kind of takes a, a a decision away from that other person and makes them decide a different way than they might have otherwise that is what Jihan is playing here he's lying 
to make the rest of the community make a certain decision that he wants. He's trying to take a decision off the board by saying, I'm going to hard fork this so you can't use or activate soft fork. Which is a complete lie. Or he's like, I'm going to do Segwit2x that has Segwit so you don't need to do user activate software. That's also trying to take that off the board. He's doing everything he can to get the user activate software off the board and it's not working. It's going forward. It's growing bigger and bigger. People are starting to get their miners in the mail now, putting them on the network, starting to mine this user activate software chain or they will, they will be mining it, but they're supporting it. They're putting the miners on there now. He's terrified of this because he has no intention to activate SegWit. None. He's lying straight to your face. If you think he is, you've been duped. Barry Silver, you've been duped. I don't know. I, I have a little bit of uh, a soft spot here for Barry Silver because I think he might be really wanting SegWit only and he thinks that the hard fork will fall apart and he knows the hard fork will fall apart. Fall apart. So he's going to go push SegWit2x which is understandable, but of course you can't come out and say, I know the hard fork's going to not happen, guys, but I'm going to pretend like it is so I can get Segwit. No, he's going to play the game. So I don't know what all these people think, but I know most people want Segwit. Most businesses want Segwit. Most wallets want Segwit. Most users want Segwit. Most new use cases for Bitcoin need Segwit. So... Um, yeah, Jihan is doing everything he can, lying as much as possible. What's that saying? Who said that? It was, I think it was a Nazi of some sort said, you know, like if you're going to lie, make it a whopper because no one will believe that you li you're lying that badly. So Jihan is just making a huge whopper of a lie. So, and no one believes that it's actual lie, but it is, he's lying to us about supporting Segwit2x. He wants this hard fork. He wants to offer something else that is not compatible with SegWit. He does have, he has no intention on activating SegWit. Okay. Next story. U.S. Congress, they're trying to stop Bitcoin at the borders here. And this was a, a bill that was proposed. It's nothing that's been passed or anything. It might not, it probably won't get passed because it is pretty overarching, but I put some links to it. There's, I put a link to a good write up here about this bill. And what they're trying to do is make it so these TSA agents or the customs people or whoever can go through your phone. They can go through your wallet. They can look at your gift cards and, and your banking wall, um, banking app and your Bitcoin app and et cetera, et cetera, trying to find this at the border and confiscate it. It's extending an old uh, statute or rule on the books for the United States. Uh, there's a really good write-up by Sovereign Man blog. I linked to that in at BitcoinMarkets.com in the show notes. This would be funny if it wasn't so real. The bill expands the civil asset forfeiture to gift cards, mobile banks, apps, and Bitcoin. It includes power to seize all bank accounts, safety deposit boxes, and more if you don't fill out this form or are caught trying to take more than $10,000 worth of value out of the USSA. The penalties go still further and add criminal penalties as well. Uh, so you can go to jail. You can serve jail time for trying to take out $11,000 out of the country. This is huge draconian capital controls, people. It's coming. They want to put this in. 
And as money starts fleeing the dollar, as money starts fleeing the United States, which is going to happen, they're going. It's going. They're going to tighten the wrenches down. I link to the actual uh, text of this new proposed thing here, and I'm just going to read the uh, main part. They're inserting this little snippet onto the end of a sentence. Prepaid access devices, digital currency, or any digital exchanger or Tumblr or digital currency. Okay, so this is an explanation of this. Prepaid access device means an electronic vehicle, a device or vehicle, such as a card, a plate, a code, a number, electronic serial number, mobile identification number, personal identification number, or other instrument that provides a portal to funds or the value of funds that have been paid in advance or can be retrievable and transferable at some point in the future. So basically everything. You, get, you have to give them your PIN, you have to give them your bank number, you have to give them your private key, you have to give them everything. I, I want to drop in a recommendation for a wallet here. The official wallet of the Bitcoin and Markets podcast, the official mobile wallet I should say, uh, is Samurai. They have a really cool feature. I'm going to look at my wallet right now. Um, that you can go stealth mode. Let me bring it up. The way this works is you have a settings and stealth. If you go into Samurai, stealth launcher, remove Samurai from the launcher and home screen. You must dial your pin from the phone dialer to launch Samurai. Stealth launch and remote pin to find an alternative pin. Okay, so that's pretty cool. It takes the icon away, so you cannot find the icon on your phone. It's hidden. So they look at your phone. They're like, oh, look. There, I don't have any Bitcoin with me. Oh, yeah, you want to look at my phone? You look at my app? You can't see it. Where it's? I, don't, I told you I don't have any Bitcoin. I'm not taking any Bitcoin with me. Oh, okay. So it, it, it hides your wallet on your phone. Some people are talking about, oh, you just memorize your seed, which is also possible. Or you like encrypt it and send it to yourself or somehow you take your private key with you. That's possible as well. But that's much harder than doing this. You just hide the icon on your phone and no one freaking knows that it's there. The problem would be if they confiscate your phone. But then Samurai has another option where you can send a text message to yourself and wipe your wallet off the phone. Which is pretty awesome too. Remote in their settings. Enable remote commands. Allow remote commands via SMS. So it's pretty cool. Samurai has all these new features they're doing all this stuff and I mean they just keep coming out with more and more things like they now they have open dime integration Uh, open dime is the physical bitcoin stick where nobody knows the private key it's contained on the stick so when you hand the stick to somebody you it's knowably uh, that it's knowable that nobody else can get to that private key it's very very interesting going forward with like face to face transactions of bitcoin Right now, open dimes are still pretty expensive. I hope they come down in price because I would buy a whole crap load of them if they were like $5 a piece, but they're, I think they're $15 or $20 a piece, so um, they're they're a little bit more expensive. Anyways, uh, Samurai is the official wallet, and if you go across the border with Samurai, then and it's a hidden icon. No one will know you have it. It's great use case, great wallet. All wallets will start doing this, but Samurai continues to push the envelope here. 
push to innovation, and I love it. All right, next story. Uh, some thoughts on lightning, because I have this article here about Chinese exchanges working with the lightning implementation or some sort of payment channels between the, the different exchanges over there. Now that we're getting SegWit, we can start talking about these lightning networks and how they will look, because there's all sorts of different talk about this. My, my prediction, I guess, or vision of the future is it's going to start with things like this between exchanges between major economic players they're going to have these big funded payment channels and even people with individuals with exchanges so you're going to have a lightning uh network with your exchange and these are going to be hubs the exchanges are going to be the hubs they're going to be the trusted parties and i think that's okay i I don't mind trusting a third party on layer two I don't want trust third party for layer one. That's that is where where Satoshi knew and everyone knows that you don't want trusted third parties is on your consensus layer on your layer one layer two. It would probably be better if it were trustless, but you're probably going to have these big these big hubs and maybe these big hubs evolve eventually into a trustless system, uh, but that's how it's going to be bootstrapped. I think these lightning networks. So these these Chinese exchanges are connecting through payment channels. Note that these channels are between trusted parties and don't really need SegWit. Um, it does it goes with what I've said previously during the heat of the scaling debate. Why all the pressure on pro- protocol devs? Where are the corporate and business devs? Why is all the scaling pressure put on the core developers? Why not put pressure on goddamn Bifinex or on Bitstamp or any of these big companies? Uh, Bitcoin.com. Altcoin Jesus is constantly talking about that he can't make transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. Well, build a goddamn payment channel to your people. Are you crazy? You have a huge sum of Bitcoin. You can fund these lightning networks or these these payment channels and pay your people through payment channels. What is the problem? There's no pressure put on these uh, business devs. It just is crazy to me. What the hell are these business devs doing? They're they're offloading all this burden onto the protocol developers. That's one reason why we're in this this pickle that we're in. Um, now these exchanges are finally stepping up to take some of the transactions off-chain, which is great. I think exchanges will be the primary impetus behind the spread of Lightning Networks. It'll start like this one is, with a few exchanges and vendors. Over the next two to five years, we'll see them expand to include a balanced ecosystem of their own. So Purse.io will get involved, maybe with Coinbase's Lightning Network, and uh, which they already are kind of uh, hooked in there. But you can see that these these um, vendors and these retail, they're all going to start, they'll pick an exchange. These exchanges will be like the Visa Network, except it will be like the Bitfinex Network. Okay, And once you are a member of the Bitfinex Network, you are hooked up with the Lightning Network in that between these people, and you can go off-chain with most things. There will likely be competing ecosystems built around a few central exchanges, like I said, uh, OKCoin or Huboy, whatever, however you say that exchange's name, um, Bitflyer in Japan, Bitfinex in Europe or Bitstamp in Europe, uh, Coinbase 
in the United States or even maybe Poloniex or Kraken or something. I don't know if they'll get involved, but, um, you know, these, these exchanges will have their own ecosystem built around them. Um, and each of those exchanges will be the on-ramps and off-ramps uh, for fiat to Bitcoin. But once you're in their ecosystem, you can transact as much as you want. And then they settle to the chain once a day with just a few transactions. That's how these Lightning Networks are going to get bootstrapped. And eventually, over 10 years, they'll start being trustless. They'll start really being interactive between everybody. All right, I want to take this opportunity to talk about a little bit of economics. Uh, a lot of shows talk about the social things going on in Bitcoin, the drama, the news, uh, but few of them uh, actually tackle some of the economic questions. And this was sparked in my mind from a Mises.org article from the other day, and uh, it examined Bitcoin. They're, they're starting to do more and more Bitcoin stuff, which is really good because I am uh, fundamentally, I'm an Austrian economist, and I think that they are the best, the most correct school of thought on economics at this point. But they're going to have to do a lot of changing here uh, because Bitcoin is redefining um, a lot of what we know about economics. In this article, they, they examined uh is Bitcoin inflationary or deflationary? Uh, the different aspects uh, that are involved with, if you take the standard Austrian definition of uh, monetary, uh, inflation is always a monetary phenomenon and applying that to Bitcoin and what, what do you end up with? Uh, two things in this article that I link in the show notes uh, jumped out at me. The first is they said that the Fed hiking rates just a few weeks ago in June was a reason for the price crash in Bitcoin. And I don't think so. I, Bitcoin is not connected in there with um, the traditional forex uh, markets, and, and traditional investment stuff yet. Uh, there's no like derivatives that tie these together. There's no, um, you know, uh, tangled web of contracts yet. The Bitcoin is on its own. It's a very small market and it's not affected uh, by that. Uh, more likely, it's some internal thing. And that was the, the Bitmain announcement that they're doing a hard fork instead of a uh, when there's a user activated soft fork they're going to do a countermeasure of a hard fork and that's what caused the pullback but um, that did jump out at me that they were saying that the fed the bit price was reacting to the fed's rate hike the second thing that jumped out at me was um, the they're starting to explore this new idea of bitcoin it's actually sinking in and affecting their thought process and eventually it's going to affect your theory. So I'm going to explore that here. Now, inflation, their their idea of inflation, and until Bitcoin, I think this was correct, that it's a monetary phenomenon. So if you increase the money supply, um, so you have more money chasing the same amount of goods, prices go up. That's just logical. So if you have 10 widgets in the economy and $10, then each of those widgets, you know, could be, you could say are worth $1. But if you add um, 90 more units of the, the money, so you have 100 
units of the money chasing 10 widgets, then you see the price is just going to go up uh, to compensate for that. Um, that's not exactly perfect because it depends on people's savings rates. You know, what's the store of value? What's the future look like for this economy, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if they're making one widget a year now, but then next year it's, it's predicted that they're going to be making a hundred widgets, you know, that's going to affect the price today of what, what everyone's paying. But, um, inflation itself is understood as a monetary phenomenon, a set amount of goods being chased by a set amount of of units of currency or money in bitcoin it's a little bit different uh, because we are inflating the money supply i mean the the supply of bitcoins circulating is increasing every 10 minutes we get another 12.5 right now bitcoin that's chasing these goods but we know the future that's fundamentally different from the past so if the money supply is controlled by nature with gold, you could strike it rich like you have the 49ers in California and it floods the market with precious metal. Or like the Spanish, they discovered the silver deposits in Peru. And so it, Spain was flooded and Europe was flooded with silver. Um, you know, that is monetary or money supply that's dictated by nature and you don't know. It's not certain. With fiat currency, it's obviously not certain. They they can print. Okay, I'm back. Uh, they can print as much as they want. You know, whatever administration gets in there, whatever head of the Federal Reserve or head of the central bank, uh, they can print as much as they want. They can withdraw uh, liquidity from the market. They can add liquidity to the market. Whatever they want to do, it's very, very, very uncertain. Um, and so it's obviously can't be a, a store of value, but with Bitcoin, again, it's, it's very different. We know the eventual supply. We know what the supply is today. Exactly. We know what the supply will be tomorrow. Exactly. And so it, there's no uncertainty about the future of the supply of money. Uh, so can we say that this is inflationary? Well, by the technical Austrian definition or monetary inflation definition, yes, it is inflationary because the money supply is growing at a set rate, but <laughs> never before have we been able to know the future supply of money exactly like we can with Bitcoin. So our definition of inflation is going to have to change. Instead of a strictly monetary phenomenon, it's going to have to be uh, about uncertainty of the supply of money. It's a small, subtle change, but it has, it'll have drastic consequences within like any monetary theory, especially the Austrians that are the, the closest to being correct. Um, so is Bitcoin inflationary? No, it's not. Uh, it is increasing in supply, but we at a certain rate, uh, a rate that we know for sure. Is it deflationary? You could argue that it is because Bitcoin can be lost. The private keys to Bitcoin can be lost. So money is disappearing from circulation. We don't know what that is. It's uncertain. So uh, it could be argued that Bitcoin is deflationary, but from a textbook perspective, it is not inflationary or deflationary. Another interesting uh, twist on this is with tokens and sidechains. Right. So um, Mimblewimble is a really cool project that's coming up. It's a really cool um, uh, 
privacy fungibility addition to Bitcoin, and they're thinking it's going to be a sidechain. They have their own native currency. I think it's called Grin Tokens or something. And when it is connected to Bitcoin, there's going to be a Bitcoin derivative that like when you peg a Bitcoin to the sidechain, it will release maybe a hundred of these other tokens within this sidechain. And so there is more units that can be added to the top of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin itself is not inflationary. It could be argued as deflationary. I don't know. There's, there's so many things out there that are going to be needed to be explored more. Um, and I think this is a great opportunity for the Austrians because they can take the lead. They understand it. They are starting from the most rational footing here. And they can take this crypto economics, this Bitcoin economics, and define what, what how we understand it. So this is a huge opportunity for the Mises Institute. It's a huge opportunity for um, people that are sound money ec economists to get in and really define our understandings of what we're dealing with here. The second part of the economics that I wanted to talk about was just Gresham's Law. This is um, fairly well known. Gresham's Law, uh, I'm just going to read straight from Wikipedia because it's, it's pretty good. Um, in economics, Gresham's law is a monetary principle stating that bad money drives out good. For example, if there are two forms of commodity money in circulation, which are accepted by law as having similar face value, the more valuable commodity will disappear from circulation. Good money is money that shows little difference between its nominal value or face value and the commodity value or the value of the underlying metal. In the absence of legal tender laws, metal coin money will freely exchange at somewhat above bullion market value. This may be observed in bullion coins, such as the Canadian gold maple leaf, etc., or even the Maria Theresa Taller from Austria. Coins of this type are of a well-known purity and in a convenient form to handle. People prefer trading in coins rather than in anonymous hunks of precious metal, so they attribute more value to the coins of equal weight. The price spread between face value and commodity value is called seniorage. Because some coins do not circulate, remaining in the possession of coin collectors, this can increase demand for coinage. On the other hand, bad money is money that has a commodity value considerably lower than its face value and is in circulation along with good money, where both forms are required to be accepted at equal value as legal tender. In Gresham's day, bad money included any coin that had been debased, Debasement was often done by the issuing body, where less than the officially specified amount of precious metal was contained in an issue of coinage, usually by allowing it with a base metal. Alloying, 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 usually alloying it with a base metal. The public could also debase coins, usually by clipping or scraping off small portions of the precious metal, also known as stemming. Other examples of bad money include counterfeit coins made from base metal. Today, all circulating coins are made from base metals, known as fiat money. In the case of clipped, scraped, or counterfeit coins, the commodity value was reduced by fraud, as the face value remains at the previous higher level. On the other hand, with a coinage debased by a government issuer, the commodity value of the coinage was often reduced quite openly while the face value of the debased coins was held at the higher level by legal tender laws. Here's an example. Silver coins were widely circulated in Canada and in the United States when the Coinage Act of 1965 was passed. These countries debased their coins by switching to cheaper metals, thereby inflating the new debased currency in relation to the supply of the former silver coins. 
the silver coins disappeared from circulation as citizens retained them to capture the steady current and future intrinsic value of the metal content over the newly inflated and therefore devalued coins, using the newer coins in daily transactions. In the late 1970s, the Hunt brothers attempted to corner the worldwide silver market but failed, temporarily driving the price far above its historic levels and intensifying the extraction of silver coins from circulation. The same process occurs today with the copper content of coins, such as the pre-1997 Canadian penny or the pre-1982 United States penny and the pre-1992 UK copper pennies and two pence. This also occurred even with coins made with less expensive metals such as steel in India. All right, now on to the theory. Gresham's Law states that any circulating currency consisting of both good and bad money quickly becomes dominated by the bad money. This is because people spending money will hand over the bad coins rather than the good ones, keeping the good ones for themselves. Legal tender laws act as a form of price control. In such a case, the artificially overvalued money is preferred in exchange because people prefer to save rather than exchange the artificially uh, demoted one. So they'll hold on to the good full silver coin and they'll trade the one that's not real silver because it's, it's overvalued. This debased one is overvalued. They, can, they want to spend it. Consider a customer purchasing an item which costs five pence, who possess several silver sixpence coins. Some of these coins are more debased, while others are less so, but legally, they are all mandated to be of equal value. The customer would prefer to retain the better coins, and so offers the shopkeeper the most debased one. In turn, the shopkeeper must give one penny in change, and has every reason to give the most debased penny. Thus, the coins that circulate in the transaction will tend to be the most debased sort available to the parties. If good coins have a face value below that of their metal content, individuals may be mo motivated to melt them down and sell the metal for its higher intrinsic value, even if such destruction is illegal. As an example, okay, we'll skip that. In addition to being melted down for its bullion value, money that is considered to be quote-unquote good tends to leave an economy through international trade. International traders are not bound by legal tender laws as citizens of the issuing country are, so they will offer higher value for good coins than bad ones. The good coins may leave their country of origin and become part of the international trade, escaping that country's legal tender laws and leaving the bad money behind. This occurred in Britain. Sorry about that. This occurred in Britain. Let me get back to where it was. During the period of the gold standard. Then it goes on to talk about history of the concept, precursors. Okay, I'll stop there. Let me just talk quickly about how I think this applies to Bitcoin. Uh, you can see like fiat currency is bad money. People are wanting to use it in, in trade, use it in circulation. And they trade it in for Bitcoin and hold Bitcoin. You can also see it in when currencies, altcoins, or even Bitcoin are in bubbles. They're overvalued, overbought the merchant adoption big kick comes in and so some some altcoins are built around this like dash they are trying to get rid of their bad money here they're trying to push this bad money out and so i say great use dash in circulation that's going to make people hold on to the good money which is bitcoin and yeah so that's all i really have to say about that i think it's a good idea for people to get familiar with some economic concepts i'm going to try to do this more um, and you know, if you come from a technical background and you're about blockchain, but you need to learn about these economic issues and how 
how Bitcoin is just completely revolutionary and the soundness behind it. Okay, uh, let's get on to some lighter topics. Alright guys, uh, I don't want to pick on Jimmy Song too much because I do think he is a pretty genuine person. Um, I don't know him personally. I've watched as much as I can about uh, with him, uh, all his content, read all of his articles. I think he is genuinely trying to understand this and he is getting better. I, I've been down on him in the past i'm going to be down on him here today again but uh, i do think his heart is in the right place and that's that's something you can't say for many many people out there uh, that are pushing certain narratives in the space uh, this is a little clip i got from uh, epicenter bitcoin which i absolutely hate that show but i do listen to some of them uh, this is one i did listen to uh, he's sounding better than usual so i wanted to play a short clip here it's like five minutes or so and i'm going to comment throughout this okay we start when this sebastian one of the hosts he asked or jimmy had said that this whole debate is over control the miners want control and the developers want control uh, of course that is right on one side but wrong on the other and Jimmy kind of has to cover his tracks here a little bit because he said developers want control. And you can hear this, that he has a hard time defining exactly how developers are trying to seize control because they're not. But uh, now Jimmy has to say how they are. Talk about this. Uh, I'm interested in this notion of control. But maybe go in a bit more detail as to what you mean by miners would like more development control and developers would like more control over miners. It seems like a circular kind of argument to me. <laughs> yeah, I, both sides want more control. And uh, what I mean by that is uh, the miners have been asking for two megabyte blocks for a while. And they wanted to get somebody, uh, you know, have a hard fork to two megabyte blocks or even larger. And uh, the developers have more or less um, sort of tabled a lot of the BIPs that were along those lines. I think they're all in, the, they all start with like one zero something. It's like 101, 102, 103, 104, something like that. Um, and for the most part, uh, hard forks are no longer really being considered. And, uh, and for the miners, that was very frustrating uh, because they want something, they think it, it, it would be perfectly safe and the developers are not giving it to them. Uh, from the miners' perspective, they've been asking for SegWit, and uh, and the miners are not really signaling. From their perspective, it's just sort of that that signaling bit is I am ready to, I, I've upgraded my software and am ready to uh, allow SegWit transactions. Um, but the miners are sort of using it like a veto, um, and they don't like that. So. Uh, you know, a, you, you could sort of see uh, how that plays out because miners are trying to replace the or at least were trying to replace the development team with Bitcoin Unlimited. And the developers were sort of trying to replace the miners by, you know, changing things to BIP 8 and, you know, at BIP 148, obviously, and 
um, trying or even threatening like a proof of work change so that you know all the mining equipment would essentially be like big bricks um uh, yeah I, it, they both want more control over what the other does uh and developers develop miners sort of mine and secure the network um and yeah that that's been sort of the big fight over the last few years i think jimmy jimmy no the, the developers do not want control here they don't they say over and over and over you are free to run whatever software you want on your node and they are going to basically run this into the ground to preserve everybody's right to do that they are cypherpunks <laughs> the miners are the ones that want control the miners and the developers are fighting that they're fighting the fact that people want to control Bitcoin. I don't understand. You're a developer, Jimmy. You're a minor core contributor. You should know that. And the, I, why would you push this meme or this uh, narrative that Bitcoin core developers are trying to get more control? I, I don't understand how you can actually be pushing that narrative. Um, you were right here that miners are pissed because the developers won't develop this. Okay. You were right there, but so what do miners want to force people to work for them? This is just like, um, well, this is, I mean, similar to how a lot of people out there see developers, like, um, a lot of CEOs and a lot of business people in general, you know, the developers are the people writing the code. They're the ones that actually make your business work and they have contempt for these developers like get back in there and write the code but in this case these are volunteers for the most part or they have their own businesses that are, are developing on bitcoin and so they don't care what these miners want and how are you going to force them see this the might makes right or whatever does not apply here Code makes right. Code is what is the defining factor of what's going on here. And if you can't write the code, you are dependent on others that can. And Bitcoin is so cutting edge. Consensus, this Nakamoto consensus, this con all you know, decentralized consensus that we have here, is so revolutionary that most people can't understand it. Ninety-nine point nine nine percent of people will never understand it, and. Uh, these developers are the experts that have created this for you. They don't have to listen to you. They don't have to do what you say. And if you want to force them, I mean, this is just like um, why single payer health care and all this stuff will never work. Government run health care because you have to force the doctors to work for somebody and then you won't have doctors. We're having a doctor shortage in the United States because people don't want to work for, they don't want to be forced to work. That's slave labor. Of course, there's going to be fewer doctors that want to be slaves. There's fewer developers that want to be slaves too. You will run these developers out of the community, or at least they will continue developing their thing, which is totally understandable. And most people will run that code. <laughs> it's super simple because they are, it's the best fucking code. 
oh my god, developers are not threatening miners here. Come on, Jimmy, you tell us you're a libertarian and all this stuff. You can't force miners to do something they don't want to do. And like it or not, I mean, you're a developer, you should know this. The developers are going to win. They're going to produce the better code. Developers are not threatening the miners. The miners are the ones threatening the users. They're threatening everybody. They're threatening Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the users, and that's who the miners are threatening. There is no two-sided power grab here. This is a one-sided power grab, and the developers are sticking up for Bitcoin. All right, let me get on to this next part. Is uh, Sebastian, asks, asks, bleh, Sebastian asks a question here. The host. Um, he is a DCG company. He's a very sober company. They recently invested in this, in Sebastian's whatever freaking blockchain, all the things company that he runs. Um, and he asks a question here about miners that gives away his complete lack of understanding of what's going on here. Okay. I'm going to let Jimmy answer this and then I'm going to come in and answer this. I mean the the miners ultimately to me have a lot of the of the actual control because they're they're running the network uh, or securing the network. What what is to stop the miners from writing their? I mean, if if the miners want a certain thing, why don't they just write it and run that code? They, they actually uh, apparently have, right? Like a lot of them are at least claiming to be running Bitcoin Unlimited. I don't, I don't know if they actually are. Um, it's easy enough to signal and make it look like you are on the network without actually running it. But they claim to be. Uh, so it's entirely possible that they are. Uh, the problem becomes when, uh, you know, network nodes don't agree. Um, I mean, everyone is sort of master of their own node. And you could do whatever you want to your own node. Uh, and, you know, uh, have any kind of ridiculous rule that, that you want. Uh, but, you know, as soon as you disagree with someone, you're going to fork off to your own chain. So that's really the big risk is that Bitcoin would split into two or even more. Um, and that's why not everybody just sort of runs their own client. They, they want something that's at least compatible with what everyone else is running. Uh, and, you know, the, the miners could uh, do that and they threaten to uh, just as much as sort of the user activated software people have. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's not really that useful unless there's enough of the entire ecosystem coming with you to to have a viable fork. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me. It's just that it, it, it seems like if there's a minority at some somewhere uh, threatening miners um, that if 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 their clients are not going to be compatible with the majority of miners that are signaling for one or one or another type of upgrade um, they're not going to get their transactions validated because the majority of miners are not going to be agreeing with them I mean they're, they're not going to be agreeing with the miners that they essentially have the power mm-hmm. um, so that that's where maybe maybe I'm missing something but I feel like miners could easily sort of take over this power struggle. Um, they could in the sense that they'll have the mining power to sort of have a more robust and secure chain in terms of proof of work. 
Um, but it's easy enough to fork off, and this is actually, we could talk about this more when we get to BIP148, but this is essentially what user-activated software is doing is sort of um, say, we're, we don't agree with what these miners are doing, and you know you're, you can't control us, so we're going to do our own thing, and whichever miners want to come with us can. Um, and you know, you as long as you get enough of the ecosystem to come with you, it's entirely uh, possible that you can do that and be successful. Uh, I whatever your definition of success is, but you know, like whether or not that's probable, or whether like it, it opens up all sorts of sort of game theory options as far as who can attack whom and what you can threaten and things like that, uh, which which make this very very difficult to analyze. <laughs> Okay, man, Jimmy really loves his game theory there. Um, he does a decent job answering this, Sebastian, but I'm I'm going to take a whack at it because, Sebastian, you have a private blockchain company. You should know how this shit works. You ask, miners have a lot of actual control. Why don't they write new code and run it? I, that's a paraphrase. It's not exact, but my answer to that is, yeah, sure, they can do whatever the hell they want. But the, they are followers. They follow the users and the developers. The way this gets rolled out here, for your sake, for the, uh, I mean, you're the CEO, I think, of a blockchain company, <laughs> and you don't understand how this works. Oh my God. Developers create, write the code. Users decide which code they want to run. Miners are followers. They are the last in the food chain. Miners are basically the algae for everybody else. <laughs> uh, miners are basically the algae. They're the, the end of the food chain. Everything else dictates to miners what they need to do. They'll apply their hashes to whatever side is more valuable. And it, it is the case where they can apply their hashes to both sides. There is merge mining. So there is a possibility that they will merge mine something. But if it's a soft fork, that doesn't make sense. Because one side will be reorged, re, uh, will be taken over, wiped out from the other side. So merge mining a, a soft fork doesn't make any sense. But you could mer merge mine a, a hard fork, I guess. But they so picture this: miners are coming up to a fork in the road, and they see one side says fifty dollars, and the other side says five thousand dollars. Which one are they going to apply their hashes to? Yeah, come on, it's a simple question. Of course, it's the $5,000 one. They have no fucking choice. There is there is a very tiny minority, less than 1% probably of all mining, that will choose the $50 side for ideological reasons. But every professional miner has to choose the most valuable side. They don't have a choice. I think it was different in Ethereum. And Sebastian, you'll like this because I'm talking about Ethereum. <laughs> but they... It was different in Ethereum with Ethereum Classic versus Ethereum because, well, one, it's very centralized and it's ideologically different here than Bitcoin. But I think the biggest difference was that all the value in Ethereum is 100% speculative. There is no real use of Ethereum. There is no, like, nobody is dedicated to using Ethereum because Think about this. If I'm using Ethereum for a business, 
and you tell me you're going to hard fork my chain. Like, I am going to resist you because you're going to fuck up my business, fuck up my app, fuck up whatever that I have going on there. The reason why there was able to be this split in Ethereum is because nobody is freaking using it. Completely different. All the value is speculative. So I have no idea what the value is going to be on both sides. I'm a miner. I can roll the dice on this side, on the Ethereum Classic side, and stay with the same chain versus go in the Ethereum hard fork side. I mean, it's obvious that the side with the foundation is probably going to have more value, but who knows? It could blow up. The Ethereum, uh, Vitalik could get arrested. Then Ethereum Classic is going to be more valuable. So see, <laughs> when you don't have like solid value behind your coin, when it's 100% speculative, a bubble economy, it's much easier to split like this. But in Bitcoin, it's a black and white. $5. $5,000. Choose one, miners. Okay, let's go with the 5000 because they are followers of the users. And you can also see this too. What's the future potential value? What's the development potential of each side of this fork? Well, the side with core, with the developer support, is going to be have a higher potential value for the future. Um, so you not only are picking like the $5,000 side, but you're picking the $5,000 side well, the reason why it's a $5,000 side is because it has the developers and the users on that side. All right, next thing he has. Uh, a minority of users threatening miners, they won't get their transactions validated because miners essentially have the power. Maybe I'm missing something. Miners could easily take over this power struggle. If you're right about this, they will, this, this power struggle would be over. But it's not. So obviously you're fucking wrong here, man. Think. You're missing something, obviously. The miners do not have the power. You're missing that the, the primary value of Bitcoin comes as a store of value, not as a payment system. It's a store of value with a payment system like put on the side of it. Think of it that way. Primary store of value with a built-in payment system. Because no blockchain payment system is going to compete with Visa. Or with PayPal. If, if they try to stop my transactions on Bitcoin, I'll just hold and I'll use Visa and PayPal. It's not a threat. Okay. Maybe, maybe Sebastian, you don't understand this because nobody uses Ethereum. Nobody uses these private blockchains for anything. Like there are no transactions. Other than ICOs and, and stuff like that, like perpetuating the Ponzi. But on Bitcoin, there's actually people using it. The primary use of Bitcoin is as a store of value. So I'm not threatened by not getting my transactions validated because, you know, I'll just hold and use Visa. What's the big deal? If you want to people to store more value in bitcoin which is what miners really want to increase the value of bitcoin you need to store more value in bitcoin then you will be compliant you will do what you're told by the users because the users are evaluating this they don't users don't need miners to tell them what is valuable users will be able to do that on their own the market will tell us 
what is the most valuable thing, not miners. Anytime you centralize something that, that is going to be less valuable than a free market decentralized choice. So anyway, that's, that's all I got to say to them. I, what, one thing I don't like about Epicenter Bitcoin is that they pump these ICOs and they pump these blockchain, all the things that have zero users that don't follow like basic economic principles. They don't understand how this stuff works and they pump these Ponzi's people are going to get hurt. Anyway, that's a wrap for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This has been Bitcoin and Markets. You can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner, um, or you can follow the show at BTCMRKTS. Also, support the show on Patreon. For minimum of dollar a month, you can. Um, I put out some good content. I just had a rant uh, that I was in my car and I heard some news about Ethereum. You know, the the big. Uh, transaction backlog and pretty much shutting down the entire network um i i had a big ass rant and i put that on my patreon for my patreon subscribers so uh, there is some good content there for a dollar a month you can get access to that and you can support the show i just want to do a, a psa here at the end guys watch out for fud about um a hard fork jihan is going to you know try to beat down this price as we're breaking out here uh, back up to near 3000 i think within the next couple weeks uh, there's going to be some major fud watch for vinnie lingham to do some fud uh, professor seer to do some fud uh, there there's gonna it's gonna be all over the place and hold people's feet to the fire on this timeline of segwit 2x expect jihan to pull out but hold their feet to the fire and also push them, push these 2x companies when Jihan does pull out, push them to support uh, user activated software. That's the only way to avoid a split. That's the only way to align all of our incentives here and uh, get us SegWit for the future. So anyway, see you next time. Thanks for listening.